0: Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this California Dreaming series, the tale of California's very first insanity plea. Last time in part one, we left off with the suspect in the murder of 12-year-old Marion Parker, William Edward Hickman, fleeing the Los Angeles area once investigators are beginning to zero in on the building where Hickman resided. We're going to pick up the story from there. The LAPD detectives on the case are going to discover their very first piece of solid forensic evidence in the case that will bring them closer to officially naming a suspect other than the victim's father, Perry Parker, that is. I want to remind you that most of the details in this episode are from a book written about this case entitled Not Just Evil by David Wilson. I've developed this script based on the story and timeline in his book. However, the various official records and documents were transcribed into the book, and I've read to you word for word for this podcast. And I also want to remind you of the warning that I provided in part one. This episode contains details involving crimes committed against a young child. Some of the details of this case are extremely graphic in nature, They are disturbing and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Alright, let's get started. This is Part 3, Episode 181 of California Dreaming, The Tale of California's Very First Insanity Plea. The LAPD came across their very first piece of solid forensic evidence, fingerprints. And it was really because of dumb luck that one of the detectives happened to make the connection. This officer came to notice that some of the fingerprints that had been taken from a stolen car were a match to some of the prints that had been lifted from the Bellevue Arms Apartments. This information was immediately announced to the public, which nowadays would not likely happen in order to maintain the integrity of this case. But this was some 94 years ago. They wanted to get the media off of their backs, to be honest. And they also wanted to use this case, several of the people involved in it, as a springboard for their own career aspirations. So the LAPD released the information about the fingerprint match and there had even been a match to one of the special delivery letters sent to the Parker residents too. So there was a small measure of reassurance that the police were finally on the right track for a change. When investigators cross-referenced the fingerprints found at the Bellevue Arms Apartments, the stolen car, and the special delivery letter... the prints that they had on file, investigators found a match to a career criminal named William Edward Hickman. And while because this suspect was only 18 years old at the time, I don't think this was much of a career, so to speak, but it does seem that this guy was probably, I'd even say most likely, definitely headed in that direction. And what was even more surprising was the fact that investigators had already talked to the suspect and he wasn't even really on the radar at the time. Detectives quickly headed back to the Bellevue Arms, but when they got to the main office, they discovered that the tenant that they were looking for, the man renting apartment 315, had suddenly and without notice vacated his apartment a search of the room for forensic evidence revealed many more sets of fingerprints that were lifted and compared. All of them were a match to the man that they were looking for. They also discovered bits of hair and human tissue in a drain in the bathroom. And they also found a tiny piece of evidence which definitively linked the apartment to Marion's body. There was an important piece of information that had been successfully withheld from the media, and this was the fact that there had been a small piece of the shell of a Brazil nut found stuck to an article of Marion's clothing. In a search of the carpeted area of apartment 315, investigators discovered a small piece of a Brazil nut. So with all of this new evidence, the district attorney was finally able to bring a strong case against Hickman to the grand jury to see if they would indeed hand down an indictment. And the good news for the Parker family was the fact that the focus of the investigation would no longer be centered on Marion's father, Perry Parker, as a suspect. The grand jury quickly handed down the indictment. And a warrant was issued for William Edward Hickman for the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. While the search for Hickman's whereabouts began, investigators continued to build their case now that they had a clear suspect that they were after. The thing that they wanted to make sure that they had to be able to tell the jury is why this happened. Why did this man commit this heinous crime? And as they started looking into Hickman's life, they began to see that the man was obsessed with movies and the cinema. When they spoke to people who were acquainted with Hickman back in his home state of Missouri, everyone said basically the same thing. All this man ever talked about was going to Hollywood and being close to where all the movies were being produced. And he wanted to live close to where all of these famous actors were living. Later on, Hickman would tell investigators that he had no real friends and he felt like the actors that he was watching in all of these movies were the only people that he would call his true friends. The only time Hickman felt any kind of happiness was when he was in a movie theater, visiting, so to speak, with all of his friends on the screen, and there was nothing outside in the real world That came to even close to providing him with that kind of comfort and company. Whatever was going on in the movie, whatever emotions each scene was meant to evoke, in the theater was the only place in the world that Hickman was able to feel those same emotions, and it became a very real and necessary part of his existence. If the actors laughed, He laughed. If they cried, he cried. If they were angry, he was angry. It was the only real connection to anything or anyone that Hickman truly felt that he had. Movies for him were more than just a form of entertainment. They were necessary in order for him to be able to function on a day-to-day basis. Because everybody needs love and companionship. And movies just happen to be this for him. Even after he committed the murder, his need for going to the movies never changed. In fact, it sort of intensified. But the fear of being found out had gotten to Hickman. So he left Southern California and headed north. But Hickman really didn't think that there was any place in California where he would be able to hide from all of the publicity this crime was garnering. So he kept driving north, even going through several of the roadblocks that had been set up by law enforcement. He made his way through without raising any suspicions. Eventually, Hickman found himself all the way up in Seattle, Washington, and he quickly found a movie theater on a bustling street. When the movie was over, sometime before 9 p.m., Hickman found a nearby clothing shop that was still open and bought some clothes to change into. He paid for these items using one of the $20 gold certificate bills that he had received from the ransom. But Hickman could tell from the look on the cashier's face that his identity had been made. As soon as Hickman left the store, the cashier called the police department and thus began the largest manhunt Seattle had seen up to that point. But Hickman managed to slip away to a tiny town several hours away where he took a set of license plates off of a parked car and replaced the plates on his car. Well, his car was stolen also, but he was trying to make sure he was covering his tracks. By the next morning, Hickman would later tell authorities that as he was driving, he decided to pick up some strangers that were hitching rides because he thought that if he had some passengers in the car with him, it would be less likely that he would be suspected of being the killer because they were looking for someone who was traveling alone. Hickman drove with a pair of hitchhikers for a couple of hours. Where they were headed is anybody's guess, but Hickman suddenly decided that he needed to ditch these guys, so he pulled over and told them that he wasn't going to drive them any further. So as these two men headed to the closest town that they could find, They noticed on the front page of the local newspaper, there was a story about a wanted killer, and the picture of the man that they were looking at on the front page of this paper was the man who had just given them a ride and dropped them off. Realizing that they had been in the car of a sadistic killer, these hitchhikers quickly notified police of who they had received that ride from. This resulted in an updated report going out to all law enforcement agencies as to the kind of car that Hickman was driving along with the license plate number, which wasn't a match to the car that he had because he had just replaced those plates with a pair of stolen Oregon license plates. Hickman decided to head back down south, finding himself in the small town of Pendleton, Oregon, where he picked up a couple more hitchhikers, named Jack and Bill Merrill. As Hickman made his way down the highway, he passed a pair of Oregon Highway Patrol officers who were specifically parked in that spot to look for any car that matched the description given in the all points bulletin. And sure enough, Hickman drove right past them with the two other men in the car. One of the officers wanted to dismiss the car because the plates didn't match the one that had gone out over their radio. But the other officer wasn't as willing to simply dismiss the car because of the plates. Everything else about the vehicle was a match. The make, the model, and the color. So these officers decided to get behind the vehicle and pull it over. Because there were three men in the car and only two police officers, they decided to approach the vehicle using an abundance of caution, meaning they unholstered their weapons and slowly walked towards the car. When they got close enough, Hickman, trying to seem as friendly and unassuming as possible, asked these two officers if he was speeding. They didn't answer him, but rather ignored his query and asked some questions of their own. What's your name? Where are you from? Things like that. Hickman told the officers that his last name was Peck and he was a student from Seattle. But the officers, who had many, many years of experience between the two of them, were pretty much able to tell when they were being lied to. So they ordered Hickman to slowly get out of the car and walk over to the side of the vehicle away from the highway. But as soon as Hickman was able to step out of his car, a handgun fell out onto the pavement. One of the officers immediately asked him, what are you doing with a weapon in your vehicle? Hickman tried to answer as innocently as he could. Well, isn't it normal to carry a weapon while you're on vacation, he asked. And the officer said, maybe it is but you don't need to carry it in your lap. The officers quickly came to the conclusion that this guy who said his name was Peck matched the description of the suspect wanted in the Marion Parker murder investigation. So they were finished with the questions and they informed him, we know that you're William Edward Heckman and we're taking you into custody. They ordered him to place his hands on the hood of his vehicle The Oregon Police Department soon called their Los Angeles counterparts and let them know that they had their man in custody. They quickly prepared to have Hickman extradited back to California. Hickman actually had no idea how vast and widespread the search for him had become until he saw the jubilant crowd that had gathered to witness him being brought into custody and into the jail. This guy was the most hunted man in the United States for several days, and the magnitude of that only sank in when the crowd outside the place where he was being brought into continued to grow. Everyone wanted to try and catch a glimpse of this sadistic killer. Upon hearing the news of Hickman's capture, reporters rushed over to the Parker residence also to see if they would be able to get a statement from the family. Perry Parker was still completely distraught and traumatized by this entire ordeal, understandably, but he managed to finally speak for the first time since all of this began. Perry Parker expressed his gratitude for the capture of this killer and that Parents in the community can now rest easy and their children are safe from this man. Hickman had been on the run for one week. And in that time, the Los Angeles Police Department had received dozens of prank calls, people claiming to be the killer or knowing who the killer was. But the investigation was over. Their man was in custody and they could focus on making sure that they crossed their T's and dotted their I's in preparing the evidence that they had to ensure that they would win a conviction in this case. William Edward Hickman had become the single most despised human being in the country, and people were thirsty for blood. But the investigators ran into a major problem right from the start. It all had to do with the fact that the small town where Hickman was taken into custody These law enforcement officials there, they actually had no idea what they were doing when dealing with such a high-profile suspect. They had the guy arrested, but they really didn't know what they needed to do next to ensure the integrity of this case. You see, Hickman actually made a confession of sorts while he was in custody in Oregon, but he didn't make the confession in an official statement to police. He had not been given the chance to speak to an attorney per the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution, and at the time when a suspect was going to offer up a full confession, that confession needed to be recorded by an official courtroom stenographer. This confession was given by Hickman to a journalist, and the journalist really didn't even take any notes either. The information that this journalist received regarding this so-called confession he reported it by recollecting what he had been told in the conversation that he had with Hickman from memory the Oregon police chief wrote down what this journalist had told him that Hickman had said thinking that this quote-unquote confession was going to be enough to hold water in court the problem was that most of this confession was a lie Hickman took all responsibility for Marion's killing off of himself and placed it onto a fictitious accomplice that didn't really exist in terms of this crime being carried out. Somebody that Hickman called Andrew Kramer. Hickman made the claim that Andrew Kramer was the one who killed Marion, not himself. And in addition to that, Hickman made the claim that he tried to actually save the girl's life, but his efforts were to no avail. When District Attorney Asa Keys read this confession, he was furious. He needed to get Hickman out of the custody of these inept police officers in Oregon and into their custody down in Los Angeles as quickly as possible. And the District Attorney was right. The police chief of that small Oregon town had no idea what he had on his hands. A virtual lynch mob had assembled and surrounded the jail where Hickman was being detained. They wanted a chance to exact their own kind of justice on this man who had killed Marion Parker in such an atrocious manner. And the police chief, he had a very real fear that his jail was going to be overrun by this mob who were hell bent on carrying out a very public execution without bothering with a trial. To complicate matters even more, this was the kind of small town where everybody knew everyone else. And the police chief was acquainted with every single member of the growing angry mob outside of his jail. So he came up with an idea. It's kind of a stupid idea, but he thought maybe he would be able to satisfy these angry people and that they would calm down and eventually go home. He, for some reason thought it might help if he allowed Hickman himself to speak to this crowd. So he brought him out to the front steps of the jail, the police chief hoping that this mob would get a glimpse of the suspect and then go away. But it only enraged the crowd even more. So the police chief tried another tactic and None of this was in accordance with police policy at all, but he was really at a loss. So he decided to announce to the crowd that each one of them could file past Hickman as he sat behind bars and see the man for themselves up close, only if they agreed to leave the area and go home once they were finished. And every single person took the opportunity to go in one by one in a single file line to see Hickman with their own eyes. And not only that, they were allowed to hurl insults at him as they did so. Never mind the idea that every suspect is innocent until proven guilty. All of that was out the window. These people were ready to see this guy hanged immediately. In the meantime, District Attorney Keyes was formulating what he was going to do next. The thing that he needed to figure out right off the bat was why Hickman had committed this crime. While it wasn't imperative that he prove or even suggest what the motive was behind a crime, he did know enough to have an understanding that a jury typically wanted to know the reasons why a person would commit the crime that they were being accused of. Even more disheartening was the fact that Hickman's confession had been told to a journalist and not in an official statement to the police chief. That journalist hadn't even recorded his notes as to exactly what Hickman had said. He only made a few notations and excerpts of his statement, and in doing so, Hickman cast himself as an accessory and that he never wanted this girl to be murdered that it was all this man, Andrew Kramer's idea, and he was the one who carried out this murder. So when the journalist wrote his article that included this confession, he wrote it as if Hickman told him it was fact. The article cast Andrew Kramer as this killer, and Hickman was an innocent bystander who tried to stop the whole thing from happening. It said that Hickman was given no choice but to allow Kramer to use his apartment at the Bellevue Arms to commit this crime, or else he may have fallen victim to Kramer as well. Hickman portrayed himself as having nothing to do with this, that he was forced into cooperating with Kramer's plan. All of this was printed in the article as if this were the truth. But It only took a little bit of digging by detectives Raymond and Lucas to discover that this Andrew Kramer was actually locked up at the time on charges of bootlegging at the time the kidnapping and murder had taken place. District Attorney Keyes could not get up to Oregon fast enough to get this man out of that small town and back to Los Angeles, and he brought a very powerful entourage with him the chief of detectives, the lead investigators, the chief of police, a stenographer to make sure that everything that was spoken got on the record. All of them went up there together to bring Marion's killer back to L.A. At this time, this was truly a shocking number of individuals to travel together to bring back just one person, especially one person who was only 18 years old at the time. Let's not forget that, that this guy was still a teenager when he did what he did to Marion Parker, which is pretty incredible when you really think about it. While Hickman was sitting in the small town jail, someone let him know that Andrew Kramer, the alleged mastermind behind the kidnapping and killing of Marion Parker, this Andrew Kramer had been in jail himself the entire time that this crime was being carried out. When Hickman heard this, and Andrew Kramer was just a name he pulled out of the air, when he heard this, he began to try and come up with a different story to cover his own butt. And this is when he began floating the notion that he might be suffering from a mental defect. So while he was still in Oregon, Hickman began asking around to some of the jail staff as to what a person might do or say to appear to be mentally ill. So the small town police chief, he decided to call in a local mental health professional to visit with Hickman and see if they could make a determination as to whether or not Hickman did suffer from mental illness. But he made sure to let the doctor know that he was not to speak to any reporters about his findings And of course, just like everybody else in the story, the doctor did not adhere to the admonishment to keep his findings to himself and immediately spoke to a journalist about his evaluation. In the local newspaper, they ran an article that read as follows. His mind seemed clear. He told a straight, coherent story and never was at a loss for words. There was nothing about him to indicate insanity. He did not differ a bit from hundreds of thousands of other young men. I found no outward evidence of perversion. Of course, such perversion and inclinations are generally hidden and often difficult to detect. Many persons are afflicted with such inherent traits, but they have the willpower to control their base desires. As to whether Hickman is given to sadistic practices, I cannot tell. I observed him only casually and did not have the opportunity to make a deep study of him. I saw nothing out of the ordinary about him, nothing that would justify a defense of insanity. He says that he does not like girls, that he is deeply religious, and that his ambition was to become a minister. Several times he made mention of God. And in discussing his capture, he took the attitude that since God willed it, it had to be. I would not say that his aversion for women is evidence of perversion. Some men are constituted that way. Nor do I think that his religious convictions are so pronounced as to produce a hallucination that God willed that he commit this act. In our asylum, we have hundreds of patients who are suffering from delusion that they are in communication with Jehovah. It is a most difficult matter for society to protect itself from degenerates. Their perversions are generally hidden. They crop up occasionally in some of the appalling crimes which fill the front pages of our newspapers. To discover, to weed out, To emasculate these people, both as a remedy and protection from society, would be a most difficult matter. Young Hickman may have come to Pendleton, established himself here, gained a good reputation, and if he were afflicted with sadistic desires, might have controlled them for an indefinite period. To discover these fellows before they commit their awful crimes is almost impossible. And to make matters even worse, and seeming to have no idea what it means to do things by the book, the police chief in Pendleton also allowed Hickman to speak to a priest. Now, this isn't exactly a problem, except for the fact that all that happened between Hickman and the priest was leaked to the newspapers too, which never should have happened either. Nobody in this story seems capable of following any kind of proper policies and procedures when dealing with this type of high-profiled case. The priest not only had a chance to speak directly with Hickman, he went and told as many reporters as he possibly could the content of everything that they had said to one another. And the newspapers printed it all. In part, it read, He asked me if I thought God would give him a chance. I told him the government of the country can punish crimes, but not sin, since sin is against God. At that point, he broke down and cried for some time, and I feel convinced that his actions were not hypocritical. I then gave a prayer of two or three minutes. He acted as a perfect gentleman all the time that I was with him. I would not definitely say that he is religious, although it is quite evident that he has religious training. He speaks excellent English and is well-educated in some respects, although I would say his education is somewhat lopsided. When a reporter asked the priest to expand on what he was saying, he brought up the first time that a criminal was successful in proving that he was insane in court and was found to be not guilty by reason of insanity and his life was spared. The report read, You must understand I am not giving my opinion as to whether or not he is guilty of murder. But I think it is the same rotten philosophy fed to Leopold and Loeb that is responsible for the situation. I believe also that if any blame is to be placed, we may say that those who have these behavioristic teachings to this young man are responsible In his book, author David Wilson explained the Leopold and Loeb reference as being about Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. It was in regards to a murder case from 1924 in Chicago, Illinois, where these two college students wanted to try and see if they had the intellectual fortitude to be able to pull off a perfect crime. So they kidnapped and murdered a child named Robert Franks. He was only 14 years old at the time of his death. The killers had a very well-known and prominent attorney who managed to get his clients sentenced to life in prison instead of being condemned to death. At the time, it did bring about a conversation about whether or not the death penalty should even be a thing in the United States. And in addition to that, most people figured that it kind of felt like Leopold and Loeb managed to dodge a death sentence based purely on the fact that they were white, they were from affluent families, whereas if they had been poor or if they were minorities, they would have most certainly been sentenced to death. One of the biggest mistakes that the small-town chief of police had made after Hickman had been apprehended was having him put his official statement in writing before him having the opportunity to consult with an attorney first or even offering him the chance to the statement that Hickman wrote reads as follows. The affair has gained nationwide publicity and the great reward and search by the police of the West coast shows the opposition of American people to criminal tendencies Kidnapping and savage murders are the worst of America's crimes and everything should be done to prevent anyone from interfering in any way with the liberty and life of American citizens. Young men of this country can see that I can pass as an ordinary young man as far as outward appearances go. Crime, in its simplest definition, is to have without work and enjoy the same place in society as other people and still show no honest effort or intention to go right. Young men, when crime has once overcome your willpower, to be honest and straight, you are a menace to society. Take my example to illustrate this. See how I try to get what every young man wants, but in becoming a criminal to do so, I put my own life in a mess and the way out is dark. I hope I can do some good by giving you this warning. Think it over. See my mistake. Be honest and upright. Respect the law. If you do these things, you'll be happier in the end and you will have gained much more from your life. And while Hickman was doing all the confessing without being offered an attorney, the entourage that had been making their way from Los Angeles to Oregon spoke to reporters and journalists when they had the chance and ensured that they were certain that they had the right man and that there was nobody else involved, no other accomplices. This was a one-man job, and no matter what Hickman has to say about it, He will have to bring evidence to the table to prove what he is saying is the truth, and he's just not going to be able to do that. They assured the public, who were still in fear that there might be the real killer running around out there while Hickman was some sort of unwitting accomplice, but they insisted that Hickman committed this brutal crime alone. In no uncertain terms, the LAPD's official stance is that Hickman is a dead man walking. As Hickman waited to be brought back to Los Angeles and was under the watch of the Pendleton, Oregon's decidedly inept police chief, Hickman actually made two attempts to take his own life in his cell. The chief, who was already feeling as if his career had taken a beating as a result of his mishandling of everything else in the Hickman case thus far, was certain that if this man managed to kill himself on his watch, his career would certainly be in ruins. Hickman's first attempt was to take a swan dive off the top bunk of his cell, landing headfirst onto the cold cement floor. His attempt failed. The second attempt, he tried to hang himself, but the only item he had was a small hand towel but the weight of his own body caused the tiny piece of fabric to tear. The second attempt was a failure also, much to the police chief's relief. The entourage arrived on Christmas Day to collect Mr. Hickman and bring him back to Los Angeles. Hickman was certain that the hordes of angry people were going to try and hang him before he ever made it back to Los Angeles. The thing that confounded investigators was how William Edward Hickman came to know his victim's father, Perry Parker. He obviously knew enough to know his name, where he worked, and that he had a daughter at a junior high school, and where that junior high school was and what his daughter's name was. He knew enough to convince the school staff to allow him to take Marion from the school, no questions asked. Investigators worked hard in piecing together the series of events that brought Hickman from Kansas to California. They discovered that he really wanted to come to California in order to be able to take in all the movies that he wanted any time that he wanted. The movie theaters there in Kansas City, Missouri were so limited it just wasn't enough for him. He needed to get to Los Angeles. Movies were his obsession. But in order to get to California, he was going to need money and money he did not have. So he was going to have to steal it. The first crime Hickman ever committed was back in Kansas City. He and a friend of his committed a robbery at a local candy store. At the time, Hickman was only 17 years old. And with the money that they got away with, they began traveling west. Hickman was A bit naive when it came to understanding just how much money it was going to cost to get to California. So the pair began robbing various businesses as they went along. And so far, everything had gone pretty smoothly and they had been able to get away with every single robbery that they committed. That is until they crossed into the state of California. The first time they tried to pull off a robbery in the state, it went wrong right away. They wanted to hit a pharmacy, but unbeknownst to the young man, there was a police officer inside the business. When Hickman and his friend brandished their weapons and demanded money, the officer pulled out his weapon and shots were exchanged. Hickman and his buddy managed to get away unharmed, but they killed the pharmacist and nearly killed the police officer. That was the first time the two young criminals failed at a robbery attempt, and it left them pretty shaken. So much so that they decided that maybe they should try to do something legitimate and find a job. And this is when the both of them applied at the first National Trust and Savings Bank, the place where Mr. Perry Parker was the senior manager. And he basically hired the two young men on the spot for a couple of menial jobs that he had available. This was in early January of 1927, 11 months before the kidnapping. And this is how Hickman became acquainted with Perry Parker. However, a few months after the boys had been hired on, a customer came in to complain that his account was $400 short. A simple look at the transactions on the account led Perry Parker to Hickman as being the one responsible for the theft. Perry called police to report the young man, and he was subsequently taken into custody. Ultimately, he was convicted, mostly because he confessed that he did indeed steal the money. And you want to talk about hutzpah? Get this. Once Hickman was sentenced to probation, he actually went back to the bank and tried to get his job back. But Perry Parker probably laughed in his face and asked him to leave his bank immediately and please don't ever come back. But when Perry was talked to about Hickman being fired from the bank, he did not think it was related to his daughter's kidnapping and murder, but investigators thought that it was absolutely connected, that this was some sort of revenge. And the statement that Perry Parker gave reads as follows. I recall the unusual manner in which Hickman talked to me about his discharge for forgery. I remember how he asked me for his position again after being granted probation, which probation I protested, and his replies to his questions with calm manner and voice I heard over the telephone, and lastly the coolness and nerve displayed Saturday night when we met for the exchange, and I am convinced that Hickman was at the other end of the telephone and that he took the $1,500. I cannot call to mind any words of madness or revenge that passed while I was talking with Hickman, but I do remember that his reaction to the forgery charges did not seem to be unusual. He evinced no nervousness and showed very little concern over the seriousness of his actions. This impressed me very much at the time, but no thought of his planning to harm me or members of my family in return for his discharge entered my mind. So, Dreamers, to me, it kind of sounds like Mr. Perry Parker was maybe a little bit naive about this. Either that or he just didn't want to admit the two things were related. Maybe that was too much for him to accept. But maybe it was just easier that this all was a random choice and that there was nothing that he did to Hickman that led to his daughter's murder. But after Hickman had been convicted of the charges related to the money that he stole from the bank, he wanted to head back to Missouri, so the court allowed for it, and he traveled back from which he came. He landed a job at a movie theater, of course, where he worked at nights, but there was just something about having to be obligated to working. Even though he was able to watch the movies that he loved so much, he hated being tied down to a job. It's been said that Hickman struggled with some mental health issues, that he just wasn't well and he often felt like his life had no hope or direction, but before long, he was let go from the job at the movie theater and he used his final paycheck to purchase a gun. From here, it was just going to have to be a life of crime for Hickman if he was going to be able to keep indulging in the movies that he enjoyed so much. It became Hickman's goal to make his way back to California. And the way he planned on financing that trip was through a series of robberies across numerous states. In a matter of eight weeks, Hickman committed 43 robberies across nearly half a dozen states. While Hickman's family and friends knew that he was desperate to get back to California, they apparently had no idea how he was going about getting the money to do so. I don't know if they just didn't question him or it didn't occur to them that he seemed to have money but didn't have a job and they just didn't put the two and two together. By the late fall of 1927, Heckman had finally made his way back to California and he was continuing to commit petty crimes in order to get by each day, which included going to the movies as much as possible. Hickman eventually grew weary of constantly having to pull off these robberies and getting away with small amounts of money. He wanted to do just one big crime and get away with a lot of money and a way of doing that at the time, which seemed to work well, involved kidnapping and demanding a ransom. He immediately thought of the people that he used to work with at the bank before he got fired. They would have unlimited access to money, obviously, working at a bank. He tried to recall which employees had young children. They couldn't be too young because they would cry and be fussy. The child had to be just that right age where Hickman would be able to keep them quiet. Then he thought of the man who had hired him, fired him, and then refused to hire him back, and that would be Mr. Perry Parker. He had twin girls. All he needed to do was kidnap one of them. And we all know what happened from there. When the entourage from Los Angeles were about to pick up Hickman and bring him back down to Southern California, they couldn't help but wonder what kind of monster that they would encounter. In order to have committed the crime that he was being accused of, he had to be completely callous and inhumane. So they were kind of surprised when they were met with somewhat of a quiet, diminutive young man who was absolutely unremarkable in every way. But he did have a bizarre outburst at one point where he began crying and shouting Marion's name with his eyes darting around the room as if he were looking for a way out, as if he were suffering some sort of mental break. But the journalists who were following the transport of the suspect back down to Los Angeles very closely reported that the members of law enforcement that were escorting Hickman repeatedly talked down to him and demanded him to, quote unquote, be a man. And they made sure to insist that William Edward Hickman was not crazy. If anything, he was putting up an act of insanity, hoping for leniency and that Hickman would be telling them the true story of what he did to Marion Parker, but they waited until the next day to head back to Los Angeles. After all, it was Christmas. When they were all getting ready to go, the people in charge of getting Hickman back to Los Angeles safely, they had one agenda in mind, to elicit an actual admissible confession from him. And the way that they were going to do that was kind of using the good cop, bad cop ploy. But also play up to what they believed to be Hickman's strong desire to be the center of attention. Something that he sorely lacked in life, which is why he immersed himself into movies so much. It was the only place where he felt like he belonged. Law enforcement, they wanted him to be treated with dignity. At least they acted like they wanted him to be, and Hickman ate all of it up. They could tell that he loved the attention. They made sure that Hickman presented well, that he wasn't a mess, and basically that he was camera-ready when they would bring him out and the media would get the first glance at him in their custody. They also acted like they felt bad for the predicament that this young man had found himself in And just to make sure that they got Hickman safely from the jail to the train, they handcuffed him to both detectives Raymond and Lucas. And once on the train, they slid right back into their good cop, bad cop roles. Detective Raymond insinuated that if it were up to him, he'd toss him out to the angry mob and be done with it. But Detective Lucas right away suggested to not be so hasty. Hickman might just win his case and be found not guilty. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. As Hickman sat between the two men who vastly outsized and outweighed him, they volleyed back and forth, asking questions at a rapid fire pace, asking the same questions multiple times in different ways. And don't forget, an official court stenographer was taking down everything that was being said. So this was all going to be on the record and admissible in court. Eventually, they managed to get what they wanted, an official confession to the crime and the truth about the kidnapping and the murder of Marion Parker. Once the confession started, they made sure everyone was present to hear every word that was being said, just to ensure that they had their bases covered. When that was done, what they wanted next from Hickman was for him to put it down on paper in his own writing, his motives. And Hickman did as he was told. And District Attorney Keys was so giddy he could barely contain himself. He would have everything he needed to see this case wrapped up nice and neat, along with his political career. As transcribed in David Wilson's book, Hickman's written statement reads as follows. My name is William Edward Hickman. I was born February 1st, 1908, at West Hartford, Arkansas. I desired to make the following statement relative to the kidnapping of Marion Parker in Los Angeles, Thursday, December 15th, 1927. During the past six months, the idea of kidnapping a young person and holding it for ransom came to me as a means of securing money for college. I had already been in touch with President Hawley of park college near kansas city missouri and was to see him again in the february following to arrange my entrance on november 23rd 1927 i rented an apartment at the bellevue arms house under an assumed name of donald evans at this date i had no definite plans to kidnap but on monday december 12th i decided to locate mr Hariv hovis chief teller at the first national bank of los angeles and arranged to take his young child, but I wasn't satisfied with the situation. I then thought of Mr. P.M. Parker because I had seen a young girl with him one day at the bank while I was employed there as a page. This was the first national bank at 7th and Spring Streets, and since I thought that girl with Mr. Parker was his own child, I decided to start my plans. On Wednesday, December 14th, I drove out to Mr. Parker's house at 1631 South Wilton Place and waited to see him drive home and his daughter return from school. On Thursday, December 15th, 7.30 a.m., I was again parked near the Parker residence in my car, which I had stolen in Kansas City, Missouri, early in November. It had a California license plate number 1677679, which I took from a Chevrolet car in San Diego, Sunday night, the 5th of December. About 8 o'clock, I saw two young girls leave the Parker home and followed them to the Mount Vernon Junior High School in that district. I returned to the school later from my apartment at the Bellevue Arms. I entered the attendance office at approximately 1230 and asked for Mr. Parker's daughter, saying that her father had been in an accident and wished to see her. I gave my name as Cooper, and I assured the teacher that I was a friend of Mr. Parker's and worked at the First National Bank. I was asked if the girl's name was Marion Parker, since it occurred that Mr. Parker had two daughters at the school. I replied in the affirmative and emphasized that it was the younger daughter for whom the father was calling. There was only a slight wait when Marion was called from her class. I told her to come with me, repeating what I had said to the teacher. The young girl did not hesitate to come with me and we left the school immediately. I drove east on Venice Boulevard to Western Avenue, north on Western to Beverly Boulevard, east on Beverly Boulevard to Temple Street, on Temple to Glendale Boulevard, out Glendale Boulevard through the city of Glendale. I stopped the car on a quiet street out in this vicinity and told Marion that she had been deceived. I told her that I would have to hold her for a day or two and that her father would have to give me $1,500. Marion did not cry out or even attempt to fight. She pleaded with me not to blindfold her or tie her and promised not to move or say anything. I believed her and took off the blindfold and the bandages from her arms and ankles. I explained to Marion what a chance I was taking. I warned her that she would be hurt if she tried to get away and I showed her my thirty-eight automatic. Marion said she understood and that she did not want to be shot. I started the car and we drove back to Los Angeles to the main post office where I mailed a special delivery letter to Marion's father. Marion sat right up in the seat beside me and talked in a friendly manner. It was very nice to hear her and I could see that she believed and trusted me for her safety. When I left the post office, I drove out to Pasadena. Here I stopped at the Western Union office on Reynold Avenue and left Marion perfectly free in the car while I sent a telegram to her father. I wanted to warn Mr. Parker not to do anything until he got my letter and told him that his daughter was safe. Marion and I left Pasadena and drove out Foothill Boulevard beyond Azusa. We talked and had a jolly time. Marion said that she liked to go driving, and she went so far as to relate to me that she had a dream just a few days before that someone called for her at the school and in reality kidnapped her. Before dark came, I turned back and we stopped in Alhambra, where I mailed a second telegram. At 7 o'clock, we went to the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena and saw the picture entitled Fathers Don't Lie with Esther Walston. Marion enjoyed the picture and we both laughed very much during the vaudeville, which followed the picture. We left the theater about 10 p.m. and drove directly to the Bellevue Arms Apartments. Marion, I could see, was a little worried and also sleepy. We sat in the car by the side of the apartments for about 30 minutes and saw a chance to enter without being seen. I told Marion that my room was on the third floor and cautioned her to follow just a few steps behind me. No one saw us go up to my apartment number 315, and when we were inside, Marion went to sleep immediately. She chose to sleep on the couch and only took off her shoes and used a pillow and a heavy blanket, which I gave her for cover. I placed a reading lamp by the door, and I left it lighted so it cast a dim light over the room. I slept in the bed and retired shortly after Marion. I stayed awake for some time to see that the girl would not attempt to leave the apartment. The next morning, Marion was awake by 7 o'clock. She was sobbing and didn't say much. I got up and prepared breakfast, but she wasn't hungry. After a while, I began to talk to Marion and tried to console her. I told her that she could write a letter to her father and that I would also. So then she stopped sobbing and wrote the note and didn't cry anymore that day. About 9.30 a.m., I left the apartment for about 30 minutes. I went downtown where I got the newspaper and mailed the second special delivery letter, which included Marion's note. I tied Marion to a chair while I was gone, but used cloth bandages so she was not cut or bruised in any way. I did not blindfold or gag her, and she promised to keep quiet. When Marion saw her pictures and name in all the papers, she felt sorry because she didn't want her father to give out the news of her kidnapping because I told her all of my plans. Later, however, she seemed to like to look at her pictures and kept reading the account of her abduction. Marion didn't want to stay in the apartment all day, so I promised to go out driving again. We left the apartment about noon and drove through Alhambra and San Gabriel, past the Mission Playhouse... To San Gabriel Boulevard and turned on the highway toward San Diego near Whittier. We drove through Santa Ana, and while we were stopped there for gasoline at a Richfield station, I noticed the attendant looked at Marion very closely. We drove on beyond San Juan Capistrano and stopped to rest the car for a while before we turned back. We were about 70 miles outside of Los Angeles and it became dark before we got back to the city. I secured some evening papers and Marion read to me as I drove. About 7 o'clock, I stopped the car just south of 7th Street on Los Angeles Street and left Marion in the car while I went to the P.E. station at 6th and Main Street and called her father over the telephone. I called twice, but the line was busy each time. I told Marion, so we drove up to Los Angeles Street to Sunset Boulevard and out on Sunset to a drugstore near Angeles Temple. I called Marion's father and talked to him. He said he had the money and wanted me to bring his girl back to him. He said he'd meet me anywhere and I said I'd call back. I called the second time from a drugstore at Pico and Wilton Streets about 8.30, which was about 30 minutes later than the first. I told Mr. Parker to get in his car alone and drive north on Wilton and 10th and turn to the right one short block to Gramercy, just north of 10th. Mary and I were parked on Pico between Wilton and Gramercy, and we both saw Mr. Parker drive by. There were two other cars following his, and I feared that some detectives were planning to trap me, so Marion and I drove directly back to my apartment and didn't go by her father. We got back inside without anyone seeing us. Marion sobbed a little because she couldn't go home that night, but she saw everything and was content to wait till the next morning. Marion slept the same way Friday night as Thursday, and we were both awake and up by 7.30 the next morning. I told Marion to write to her father that he must not try to trap me or something might happen to her. She wrote the note in her own words and very willingly, same as the first note, since she knew my plans as well as I did and read all of my letters. I told Marion all along that I would have to make things look worse to her father than they really were, so that he would be eager to settle right away. Marion knew that I wrote her father that I would kill her if he didn't pay me, but she knew that I didn't mean it and was not worried or excited about it. In fact, I promised Marion that even though her father didn't pay the money, I would let her go back unharmed. She felt perfectly safe, and the tragedy was so sudden and unexpected that I'm sure she never actually suffered during the whole affair, except for a little sobbing, which she couldn't keep back for her father and mother. I wrote my third letter to Mr. Parker and put it with Marion's note in the same envelope. I told Marion that I would go downtown again to get the newspapers and mail the special delivery letter. I said I would return in less than half an hour and that we would get in the car and meet her father somewhere that morning. I went ahead and tied her to the chair as I did Friday morning, except I blindfolded her this time and made ready to leave the apartment. She said to hurry and come back. At this moment, my intention to murder completely gripped me. I went to the kitchen and got out the rolling pin, meaning to knock her unconscious. I hesitated for a moment and changed my mind. Instead, I took a dish towel and came back to where she was sitting on the chair pushed back in a small nook in the dressing room, with her back turned to me. I gently placed the towel around her neck and explained that it might rest her head, but before she had time to doubt or even say anything, I suddenly pulled the towel about her throat and applied all of my strength to the move. She made no audible noise except for the struggle and heaving of her body during the period of strangulation, which continued for about two minutes. When Marion passed to unconsciousness and her body stopped its violent struggle, I untied the bandages and laid her on the floor. I took off her shoes and stocking, her sweater and dress, and placed her in the bathtub. I got a big pocket knife, which I had in the apartment, and started cutting. First, I cut a place in her throat to drain the blood, but this was not sufficient. I then cut her arms in two at the elbows and washed and wrapped them in the newspaper. I drained the blood from the tub as I cut each part so that no stains would be allowed to harden. Next, I cut her legs in two at the knee. I let the blood drain and then washed and wrapped them in newspaper also. I put the limbs in the cabinet in the kitchen and took the remaining undergarments from the body and cut through the body at the waist. I cut the limbs and body. There were heavy issues of blood and jerks of flesh to indicate that life had not completely left the body. I drained the blood from the midsection and washed and wrapped this part in newspaper and placed it on the shelf in the dressing room. I washed the blood from the tub and separated some of the internal organs from the body and wrapped them in paper. Then I tied a towel about the neck and tied another towel to it and left the upper part of the body to hang until the blood had completely drained out of it. I placed the towel up in the body to absorb any blood or anything which did not dry. I took this part of the body and after I had washed and dried it, wrapped the exposed ends of the arms and waist with paper and tied them so that the paper would not slip. I dressed the body and placed it in a brown suitcase. I combed back the hair, powdered the face, and laid a cloth over the face when I closed the suitcase. I put the suitcase on a shelf in the dressing room and then cleaned up the bath, trying not to leave any traces of blood anywhere. I went to the writing desk and wrote a second part to my third letter, which I called the Final Chance Terms. I opened the envelope, which I had sealed, and put this third part with Marion's second note and my third letter. I then went downtown and mailed the special delivery to Mr. Parker about one o'clock. I then went to Lowe's State Theatre, but I was unable to keep my mind on the picture and wept during the performance. I returned to my apartment about 5:30 p.m. and took all the parts of Marion's body downstairs to the car waiting by the side entrance. No one saw me, and I hurried out on Sunset Boulevard. And turned to the right at Elysian Park, where within 100 yards along the road, I left all of these parts. I was back in the apartment by 6 o'clock and took the suitcase with the upper section and drove to 6th Street and Western Avenue. Here I called Mr. Parker and told him to come to Manhattan Place and park just north of 5th Street. I drove around in that neighborhood to see that no police cars were coming before I met Mr. Parker and I stopped between 6th and 5th Streets on Manhattan Place and took the body from the suitcase. I left the suitcase outside the car before I got back inside. I turned one number back from each end of the rear license plate. About 8 o'clock, I saw Mr. Parker's car where I had told him to be, and as I approached, I tied a white handkerchief about my face. I drove up to the side of his car and stopped. I had a shotgun in one hand and I raised it up so that Mr. Parker would see and cautioned him to be careful. He asked to see his daughter and I raised up the head of the child so he could see the face. He asked if it was alive. I said, yes, she is sleeping. I asked for the money and he handed it right over to me. I said I'd pull up ahead of him about 50 feet and let the child out. I pulled up ahead and stopped, but only leaned over and placed the body on the edge of the fender so that it rolled over, and then I sped east on 4th Street and downtown, where I parked the car on 9th and Grand. Note, the knife that I used in cutting the child was purchased at a hardware store on South Main Street, about 5th Street. I identified this knife to Chief of Detectives Klein, who now has it in his possession. He got this knife from my suitcase where I said it was. I then went to the Leighton Cafe in the arcade on Broadway between 5th and 6th Streets. I passed one of my $20 gold certificates when I paid for my meal. I went back to the apartment after I left the cafeteria and retired. On Sunday morning, detectives from the police department searched my apartment for towels but made no arrest. I took my guns and the ransom money and checked them at the P.E. station near 6th and Main. I also checked a black handbag and a suit box at the station. I went to the Tower Theater early in the afternoon, and shortly after 5 p.m., I rode out on Hollywood Boulevard on a P.E. car. And Dreamers, by the way, that's Pacific Electric. It was the public transportation at the time. It's the railway And the items that he checked in at the public transportation station is where he left them. So he continued. I rode out on Hollywood Boulevard on a P.E. car and got off at Western Avenue. I entered a closed car parked on Hollywood Boulevard near Western and told the man sitting at the wheel to start the car. He saw my gun and obeyed. We drove several blocks away and I told him to leave the car. Before he did... I took about $15 from him in money. This occurred about 6 o'clock Sunday evening, and shortly after 7, I had secured my packages and grip from the P.E. station and was on my way out of Los Angeles on Ventura Boulevard. I drove overnight and arrived in San Francisco on Monday about 1 p.m. I stopped at the Herald Hotel on Tuesday about 9.30 a.m. I started for Seattle, Washington, I arrived there between 6 and 7 p.m. Wednesday and left there about 9:30 p.m. to go back to Portland, Oregon. I passed two of the gold certificates in Seattle and another on the road about 25 miles south of Seattle. The two bills in Seattle were in the downtown district, one at a clothing store where I purchased a pair of gloves and a suit of underwear, and the other was at a theater. Note, while at the Herald Hotel in San Francisco, room 402, I assumed the name of Edward J. King of Seattle. I arrived in Portland early Thursday morning and started on the Columbia River Highway East. Before leaving Portland, I left my California license plates and put on two Washington plates, which I took from a Ford in Olympia. On the Columbia River Highway near the Dells, Oregon, I picked up two boy pedestrians and drove on till within a few miles of the town of Pendleton, Oregon, where I was arrested and taken to the city jail at Pendleton. The statement that I made after the arrest implicating Andrew Kramer and June Dunning was false. This is my true statement. Note, on the highway north of San Francisco, I picked up a man and left him at Redding. I picked up two fellows south of Dunsmuir, who rode with me to Portland, Oregon. I might say the names of Andrew Kramer and June Dunning are merely fictitious as far as I know. Note, in reference to Marion's body, just before I delivered the portion to her father, I used a large needle which I had in my possession and some black thread to fix and hold the upper lids of her eyes so that her father would think that she was alive when he saw the face. The shirt with the name Gerber written on the collar, which was torn and used to tie parts of the body of Marion, was a shirt I had in my possession since I left Kansas City in October, and which was given to me by my younger brother, Alfred. The name Gerber, I believe, is one of my brother's friends with whom he has traveled and got on the shirt when it was sent to this man's laundry this statement is true and made freely and voluntarily by me, William Edward Hickman. Hickman provided investigators with a second written statement as to his motive for killing Marion Parker, also written on the train ride back to Los Angeles. It reads, My name is William Edward Hickman, and this statement was made and witnessed on the SP train, that's the Southern Pacific train, en route to Los Angeles. The statement regards the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker. The time of the murder was Saturday morning, December 17, 1927. The place was in room 315 at the Bellevue Apartments in Los Angeles. I wish to explain in full the motives which prompted me to commit this crime. In the first place, let me say that the only circumstances connecting my intentions of murder to Marion Parker are purely incidental. I was not prompted by revenge in the killing of Marion Parker. Only through my association with Mr. P. M. Parker at the First National Bank while I worked there as a page from January to June of 1927 made it possible for me to see Marion Parker and to know that she was P.M. Parker's daughter. This was incidental, and I merely picked it up and followed through. My motives in the murder of Marion Parker are as follows. Number 1. Fear of detection by the police and the belief that to kill and dissect the body, I would be able to evade suspicion and arrest. I had warned Mr. Parker to keep the case secret and private, but this he was not reasonably able to do, so that the great publicity and search which followed caused me to use what I considered the greatest precautions in protecting myself. After successfully dodging the authorities for two days, I was overcome by such fear that I did not hesitate to murder to escape notice. I considered that this fear and precaution were the result of my instinct for self-protection in time of danger. Number 2. Marion had a strong confidence in me for her own safety, and I considered her own wish to return to her father Saturday morning too deeply. However, my desire to secure the money and return to college was even greater. I knew that if I refused to take her back Saturday morning, she might distrust me enough to give some sign that it would cause my discovery. Yet I felt that if I did take her back in daylight, I might fall in a trap and be caught. So in order to go through with my plans, enough to get the money and keep Marion from ever knowing while she was alive that I would disappoint her confidence in me, I killed her so suddenly and unexpectedly or she passed beyond consciousness so quickly and unexpectedly that she never had a fear or thought of her own death. Then, in order to get her out of my apartment, without notice, I prompted after she was beyond consciousness to dissect her body. Number three, for several years I have a peculiar complex. Even though my habits have always been clean and although my high school record is commendable, I have had an uncontrollable desire to commit a great crime. This peculiar feeling, and I believe that it borders on the edge of insanity or that it comes from as weird a relief from seriousness or deep thought, found a means of expressing itself in the Parker case. I am very sensitive and have a strong sense of pride. I have not been able to find a real practice value in religion or enough satisfaction that it is based on absolute reason. My deep thought on this subject and my apparent disappointment with my conclusion have shaken my senses of morality. However, I do not believe that I am insane or crazy, yet I do think that this complex of mine should be considered least among my motives in the explanation of this complex crime. I cannot understand it myself, but I do consider it a big motive for this crime. I do not consider crime seriously enough. I think that if I want something, no matter what means I have to secure it, I am justified in getting it. My record of crime illustrates this statement very thoroughly. Even in the matter of Marion Parker, I could not realize the terrible guilt. I felt that some kind of providence was guiding me and protecting me in this whole case. These facts, I believe, are associated with my complex. I want to make a statement here to avoid any suspicion that during my connection with Marion Parker that I took any advantage of her femininity. I can only give my word that I did not, but I gave this very sincerely and truthfully. My word is substantiated by the doctor's examination of the girl's body, and I feel that everyone can be rest assured that the girl was not molested in any way. I would like to say that I have had no bad personal habits. I have never been drunk or taken any intoxicating drinks. I do not gamble. I have never been in any corrupt conduct with the female sex. In support of these statements, reference can be made to my record in the juvenile court of Los Angeles. In giving these motives I have been as honest as I know how. I have searched my mind and impulses under all the circumstances and this is my truthful summary. William Edward Hickman Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and end part two here. Part three will be available in another couple days. You won't have to wait long. I don't exactly have it written yet, but I'm getting there. We are going to next discuss how Hickman's obsession with watching movies was potentially going to impact the film industry, which had just begun to boom in Southern California at the time that this crime took place. And we're going to get into Hickman's murder trial and the precedent that it was going to be setting within the justice system. So keep your eyes peeled for part three. I think I might go ahead and begin work on the next part of our Patreon series. I got a little bit of complaining that it was too long between parts. So I'm going to try to get back to working on that. That is the 1985 case involving 17-year-old Missy Avila. It's a pretty well-known incident, and I'm also using mainly a book written about the story to develop the script for the show, so it's quite detailed. If you're not on Patreon to hear the intriguing story of Missy Avila, it's available for all patrons at every tier level starting at $1 a month, so something to consider while you're waiting for the next installment of this series thank you all so much for listening I am your host Roseanne I am not the other Roseanne as in Roseanne Barr so let's be clear about that and if you want to reverse your one-star review that would be much appreciated And anyone who wants to help counteract that review, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave me some extra stars if you can. Thank you so much. And until next time, as always, sweet dreams.